morning again. Um, we are, uh, in the last eight weeks, we've been in a series, and we're in kind of one of those pivotal times as a church where we're trying to rechart who we are, take the best of who we've been, and uh, ask the question about God, who God's calling us to be in this next season of life. And uh, so we spent the last eight weeks looking at, or nine weeks, I guess, looking at the, Paul's letter to the Galatians and looking at how we can become and what God is inviting us to become uh, a, a church that's centered on Jesus. And now we're going to take a break for the rest of the summer from that series, and we're going to uh, start a new one, which probably will be our rhythms every summer, which is to talk about a rule of, of life. And this is, uh, we did a series on this when I first became the pastor. We spent 12 weeks looking and creating and crafting a rule of life together. Um, but rule of life is just ancient language for how we organize our lives with Jesus at the center. Uh, yes, you can take one of these from Sarah. Everybody can have their own, but there's enough for everybody to have their own, I think. Yeah, feel free. So just take one of those and pass it down, um, and uh, we'll, we'll use it in a few minutes. So we're starting this, rule, uh, this series on rule of life today. We're gonna, uh, so I want to give us some vision for where we're going. We're going to read together Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. I also want to read this uh, same passage for us from the Message Translation, which is Eugene Peterson's translation. I think it just puts it into very everyday, helpful language for us. He writes, So here's what I want you to do with God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you can fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God, and you'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what He wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings out the best, or the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. This is God's Word. So today, we're, as we start this uh, series, I just want to uh, walk through this passage together and talk about it and give us some vision, like I said, for what we're walking into in this next season. So Paul starts this passage in the message. It says, so here's what I want you to do. He's going to give us some instruction for how we are to follow God and to be the people of God. So he says, here's what I want you to do with God helping you. And here I like the CSB's uh, version of this a little bit better. It makes it more clear of what he's saying. He says, therefore, in view of the mercies of God, or in light of the mercy of God. So he's saying something has come before. We're in chapter 12 of the letter, and Paul has spent a lot of time talking about this mercy and what it looks like, um, and how we're the recipients of it. And one of the best summaries comes very early in the book. So let's look at that together. Romans 1, verses 1 to 6. He says this, the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So for Paul, this word gospel is not something that just happened out of the blue. It's not just a message that stands out there like we talked about in the Galatians series. It's not grace that is just out there that we believe in. It's, it's rooted in a story. It's a culture and a specific time and a specific place and a message about a specific person. And as we, we saw when we looked at the gospel according to Matthew, that it's, it's the person who comes in light of people who are shaped in the Hebrew story. Their hopes, their dreams, their desires for this person to come and to save and to liberate and to be their king. So this is the gospel of God, and Paul continues that it's concerning his son, Jesus Christ, 
our Lord. Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is one of the oldest formulations of the central belief of Christianity. In the Bible, it's repeated many different times. Jesus Christ is Lord. The word Jesus is the word, um, uh, jo- uh, wow, God saves, Yahweh saves. I was stuck in between several different words there. But the, the, um, Joshua is the other name for it, Yeshua, that Yahweh saves, that God will come and save his people. The word Christ is the Greek translation of the word Messiah or Mashiach, this idea that this anointed person would come, this king would come and liberate his people. Jesus Christ is Lord. And it continues on, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh and appointed to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. There's so much in this little sentence here, but I just want to point out that he's saying that Paul, Paul is saying that Jesus is both God and man. He's God become human, and he's now the resurrected Jesus reigning and ruling as king. This is the good news for Paul. This is the mercy that we received. He continues on, through him we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. To bring about the obedience of faith. This mercy and this grace that we've received is actually to make a change in us as people. It's going to allow us to do something, to live into this vision that God has for who we're to be as people. And God has this vision, we've looked at it many times, but that we are people who are reflecting our God, that we're supposed to be in this position of worship to our God, where he is at the center And our lives are pointed towards him, and we worship him, and we partner with him and reflect him into the world and into each other's lives. And because of this gift of Jesus, we can now live into this vision of what it means to be human. We're free, as Paul will say often. What are we free to do? And then he continues on the last sentence here. For the sake of his name among the Gentiles, including you who are called by Jesus Christ. So this grace, this mercy that we've received in this person of Jesus sets us free. And it's really good for us. There's a benefit for us. But Paul finishes by saying that there's always this blessing that we experience to be a blessing to other people. We carry the name of Jesus in order to make it known in the world, for it to shine out. And and that Jesus reflects from us as individuals, as families, as a community out into the world so that people may come to know and also carry the name of Jesus. So this for Paul is the grace that we've received, the mercy that we've received. It's the story that's in the rearview mirror as he starts chapter 12. So he's going to give us some instruction. What is he now going to call us to do? How are we to respond to this grace that we've received? Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. I think many of us who have grown up in the church, and that's probably quite a few of us in this place, we have a pretty dismembered view of what it means uh, or what God wants from us. So we know that God wants our hearts. We sing a thousand songs about that. God, you have my heart. You want my heart. I love you. Uh, This kind of thinking. Um, I did some research this week, and um, from what I can understand from the songs that we sing, Jesus lives in our hearts. That's where he lives, from what I can uh, get. At youth conferences, you know, if you've ever had the joy of being at one of those, if not, you can talk to Mitch and he'll take you. Uh, You know, you have that thing where one people on one side, they yell, I love Jesus, how about you? And then they go back and forth. It's something like that, right? I don't know if that still happens. I may be belaying my age here. But God wants our hearts. We know this. We know he also wants our minds. So we study the Bible, we have study Bibles, we have Bible studies, and we know it's very important what we believe about Jesus. And then we know he sort of wants our bodies in some ways, mostly that he, he wants us not to do certain things with our bodies. But this is often the extent of what we think about when we think about what God wants for our lives. And it's a very dismembered vision. 
of what God wants. It's a couple organs, and that basically God wants me to wear a chastity belt for certain parts of my life. Now, I'm being a bit facetious here, but I do think that this actually incorporates what we think about when we think about what God wants and what it means to follow Jesus. And there's truth to each of these things. But one of the reasons I love this translation is because of what it says, that just you're to take your everyday, ordinary life, your going and your coming, the moments that are just mundane and place them before God as an offering. That's what we need, and that's what God wants. He wants all of us, and most of us, most of our lives are just made up from these everyday, ordinary moments. And I think this is really good news for those of us who are really busy people. A lot of us have full lives. Because maybe in this season, you know, a pilgrimage to the home of St. Francis, or taking a week-long silent retreat at Rivendale, or, you know, a four-day fast, or whatever it is that you think you're supposed to do when you have spiritual practices. That's just not an option for us at this point in our life. And so, if we're to take our everyday life and place it before God, maybe what we need to do is those moments that happen every day, when your kid comes to your room and they've peed the bed again, and place that before God as an offering, that that becomes a prayer bell for you. Or when your kids wake up every morning, as mine did for many, many years, at 5.30 a.m., and you want to bless, a curse and not bless, that you take those moments and you learn how to turn them towards God and bring them as an offering to Him. Or maybe your commute to work, that this can become a prayer walk for you or a prayer drive for you where you turn your attention and focus it towards Jesus and you pray for the folks that you're about to see in the day and you take on the eyes of Christ. Or before you open your phone and scroll through it, that you open your hands, you put down your phone, you open your hands, you close your eyes, and you make space for the Holy Spirit instead. It's these everyday moments of life that God wants from us. And this is where a rule of life comes in. It's a set of practices for a very specific time that helps us bring our everyday lives into line with the mercies of God to help us to become people that look like Jesus. In centered set language, this is the way that we put Jesus at the center of our lives and we turn our lives towards him, that we take a directional approach and we partner with him to become the people that he's calling us to become. And so with that said, I want to talk to you about the rule of life that we have in our community. And there's two of them. So the first one I'll talk to you about is the community rule of life. This is a suggested guide to practices that help us to become like Jesus. And I'll say four things about this rule of life before explaining what's on the screen behind me. So the first is that it's thorough. It covers much of our everyday lives. The second is that it's essential. And it contains many of the requisite and classic spiritual practices. If you've ever heard any talks about spiritual practices or disciplines, you'll see many of them up here on the screen. It's also specific. So each discipline is designed to be clear and ready to practice. It's very specific. And then finally, it's aspirational. So there are 12 practices up on this screen, and I think that actually every person in this room could do that. Now, that might sound absolutely crazy to you, and so you're saying, I don't have any spiritual practices now. That's fine. Start where you're at and add a little bit to it this summer. That's the invitation as we go through this series, as different people come and they preach and they introduce us to spiritual practices and we do various spiritual practices together. It's just the invitation to try a few things out. And as you do, I'll give you one piece uh, of, or two pieces of advice. Um, it's to match spiritual practices together. So we have spiritual practices that are designed to focus on loving God. Well, let me, sorry, let me describe them first and then... Uh, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about them. So we have three ways of divvying this up. There you see there's three rings here. So the rings talk about the time. So we have daily practices, weekly practices, and then monthly practices. 
And then on um, the horizontal, we have practices that help us to love God. And then practices on the right that help us to love our neighbor. And then on the top, practices that help us embrace. There are things we start doing. And then on the bottom, things we stop doing. Things that we resist. And here's what I was going to say. I would encourage you, instead of just doing one practice, to always take two. And the reason for that is to be balanced. Some of us are, are by, you know, just by our disposition, we're more likely to put on a practice of loving God, where we're going to kind of be internal more and more, look at ourselves, and the tendency there for us is to become kind of navel-gazing in our faith. And so I encourage you to also match that with a practice of loving neighbor, something that we're doing that we're calling you to serve or to, to do something with your life, to focus on people other than yourself. Some of us have the opposite problem. We're like Martha's, you know, we're ready to go all the time, serve more, do more, do more. And so I encourage you, if that's your disposition, that's fine, but then match it with a practice that helps you to love God, to create space for him in your life. Also, I encourage you to get a practice of embracing and one of resisting. Uh, when we talk about spiritual practices, one of the problems can be that you just hear, I have to add more to my life. More, 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 do more. And, and without a practice of resisting, which creates space, we will not add anything to our lives. There will be very difficult to add anything in. So I encourage you to add one of resistance with one of embracing. So uh, let me just talk through uh, the 12 practice that we have. And I'm going to start in the daily. So it's in the, in the middle circle. And I'll start with the top left-hand side, the one with the hammer in the heart. That's three times a day kneeling prayer. And then we go over to the right, so we'll go clockwise. So the fork and spoon is eating a meal with somebody every day. Some of you who have small kids might be like, how about if I eat a meal with nobody once a day? That would be great for me. Uh, on the bottom, uh, the phone is one hour off of your phone every day. And then scripture before phone. Those are the four daily practices. Moving to the weekly one, starting with the pillow, that's the practice of Sabbath, a 24-hour Sabbath. The one on the right with the kind of uh, talking boxes is a conversation with a spiritual friend once a week. On the bottom, limiting your uh, media time to five hours, and then a 24-hour fast from something. And then again, starting on the top left-hand side with a little plant there, this is to engage once a month, just a morning, for example, a couple hours in a spiritual practice that God's inviting you into. Maybe for you it's creating something, doing art, doing music. Maybe it's silence and solitude. Whatever God's inviting you into in this season of your life. The houses on the right is uh, an intentional conversation with a neighbor or a coworker, someone who doesn't follow Jesus once a month. On the bottom with the hand is serving in our community once a month. And then finally on the left is tithing, giving. And so this makes up our rule of life. Now from this community rule of life, we invite you to also have your own. So this is, like I said, aspirational. It's something that we are talking about all together. But in front of you, you have a blank sheet of paper. And I encourage each of us to have our own rule of life. If you don't have another sheet, they're right here. Um, and uh, a personal one or one with your family. And um, I encourage you, all the information for this, if, you, if you're looking for more information or you want to print these off at home, all the information is up on the website so you can get it. But we want to be a community. This is aspirational for us too. I think a lot of us even have heard this word rule of life before, but it's not something we're actually practicing but we want this to become part of the rhythms of who we are. That in every season of our life, I would say four times a year, as the seasons change, we take a look at our calendars and our schedules and what God's calling us into and we create and practice and, and become accountable to the rule of life for that season of our lives. 
practices that help us say yes to the Spirit in this season. So for the rest of the summer, we're going to be outlining various spiritual practices. But today, and I have a lot of different people that are going to be coming in to both lead us in spiritual practice and talk about spiritual practice so that you can hear uh, different voices and not just mine telling you about how I do different spiritual practices. And so I hope that that opens up some new vistas of imagination for what spiritual practice might look like in your life. But today I just want us to give us a bit more vision from this passage of why. Why would we even consider doing something like this, creating a rule of life in this season for each of us? So let's look at the rest of the passage to talk about that together. Paul says, embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for him. So interestingly, this section here starts and ends with the word best. Best is a value word. It's asking, what do you lift up? What do you think is the most important in your life? Now, we're entering prime time here in the summer. Despite the weather today, it actually is summer in Vancouver. And in our family and in our home, that means that we have to make some decisions about what's best. And there's two places that uh, we often have to make this decision about. The first is, what's the best ice cream in the city? Where are we going to go for ice cream on a very hot day? So, rain or shine, or Ernest, or Dairy Queen, or Mister, or Casa Gelato, or, you know, McDonald's. I don't know where you go for your ice cream. But this is a question that comes up in our home. And the second one is, where, if we're going to go have a beer on a patio, where are we going to go? So are we going to go to Parallel 49? Or are we going to go to Brass Neck? Are we going to go to 33 Acres? Uh, are we going to go to Off the Rail? Where are we going to go? There's so many great breweries in Vancouver. Now, how would you find out what I think and what our family thinks is the best ice cream place or the best patio to go have a beer at? Well, one of the ways is that you could just ask me. You could, say, you could ask somebody in our family, what's the best ice cream place? So if you ask my daughter, Nora, she will tell you Casa Gelato. Casa Gelato is the best ice cream place in the city. And, and the reason she would give you is because it's very close. It's the closest one to our house. It's the big pink building on Venables, if you guys know. Okay, she likes pink. We walked there the other day, and we were walking through our neighborhood, and she said, if I owned a house here, I would, I would paint it pink and purple. And I was like, praise God, you will probably never own a house in this neighborhood for all the rest of us. But this big pink building, she just like loves it. There's over 200 flavors there. So if you can't find a flavor in that place, that's on you. You probably have a problem. That's what Nora always says. There's a flavor for everybody. And her favorite ice cream is there, which she got the other day, Nerd Cotton Candy. Bright purple, nothing organic in this ice cream whatsoever. So if you asked her, that's what she'd say. Casa Gelato is the best. But if you followed our family around in the summer... And you said, every time that you go for ice cream, I want you to give me a call, and I'll follow you to where you go. You would find we very, very rarely go to Casa Gelato. In fact, we walked a few, maybe a kilometer farther, over to Ernest Ice Cream. Now, why? Why do we do that? It's because of the thing that we actually value. The kids' ice creams there are half the price <laughs> that they are at Casa Gelato. And I don't care if we have to walk 20 more miles <laughs> to get there. Because that's what I value, and I, it turns out I'm the one paying for the ice cream. And our actual values are shown in us walking there again and again and again and again. The Bible and psychology would say that's actually the best way to do that. Or if you ask me what the best brewery is in Vancouver, I would say to you Brassneck is the best brewery in Vancouver, and that's just a stone-cold fact, okay? If you don't like that, you can... You could find another church, okay? I, I, we preach the truth here, and that's all there is to it. But, again, if you, you ask me, that would be my answer to you. 
But if you followed us around on those nights that are really hot and our house is too hot and we want to go take a ride and go sit outside, you would find that we, our family, will ride over to Parallel 49 way more often. Now why? Well, it's because the ride there is nice and easy. We don't have any hills that we have to go up. It's fairly protected. They've got root beer that my kids love. They make their own root beer. And they've got a patio outside that you rarely ever have to wait for. So we can go over there, and they have tater tots. This is the new thing. My kids had never tried tater tots before this year, and they are very excited. So I like brass neck. I actually think it's better, but the place, I only maybe go there once or twice a year. The place that we'll, our family will go every couple weeks when we have those hot evenings is Parallel 49, where we actually go talks about what we love and what we value. Now, why does this matter? I think for many of us, our relationship with Jesus is exactly the same. We hear these words, that what God has is the best for us, and we agree with them. We're like, oh, Jesus is the best. Isn't he the best? We love Jesus so much. But if we were to take a look at our actual lives, at our calendars, at our credit card statements, at the things that occupy our minds when they have nothing else to think about, of the habits and the things that we just engage in every day, those things would speak to what's actually best in our lives to what is, as Paul says, Lord. That's what we truly value, and that's what we put up above everything else. James K.A. Smith, in his wonderful book, You Are What You Love, The Spiritual Power of Habit, says this, the body of Christ is that unique community of practice whose members own up to the fact that we don't always love what we say that we do, and that the devices and the desires of our hearts outstrip our best intentions. We have good intentions, we know that God is the best, but our lives are actually directed in another direction, off to something else, up to some other vision of the good life. So if God has a vision for us of, of what's best and who he's inviting us to become and to be, how, does our hearts, how do our hearts get off? How do we get off course? How do we, why do we end up directed towards a different vision of the good life and what's best. Well, Paul continues, and he says this, don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Paul's saying here that we're formed by our cultures, that our cultures are, teach us how to love. And there's a lot to be said here, and I'm, this is something I'm very, very passionate about, so I feel like we could do a whole course on it. So I wrote this section very carefully to try to keep it as short as I possibly could. The problem with this is that we're unaware that this is happening, usually. This word is very key here, that it happens to us without thinking, that we become acculturated to the hopes and the desires of our culture, that we become so well-adjusted, and it happens with, without us even thinking about it. Now, two things to quickly say about that. The first is that means that it's very, very hard for me to see how I've become well-adjusted to my culture. Those are just things that, that are. They're just the ruts that I live in. It's very, very hard for me to see how I've become well-adjusted to my culture, but it's much easier for me to see how you have not become, or you've become well-adjusted to your culture, where you're off with the gospel. And what happens is sometimes when we hear a verse like this, what we think is, oh, I know those people that Paul is talking about, those people who are so well-adjusted to their culture. And it's, it's sad. It's too bad. And I know those kinds of people. They're not like me, by the way. They're those Gen Zers, or those Millennials, or those Gen Xers, or those Boomers, whoever I'm not, basically, by the way, that they've become so well-adjusted to their culture, and they don't even know it. 
So the point is that we look outside of ourselves first. And there is a value to this. Being in a community of people who are different than us, they can, we can often see the places where we become so well-adjusted that we don't even see it. The places where water is just swimming around us and we're just completely blind to it. But I, I encourage you with these words. Only speak to those people that you happen to see how they're so well-adjusted if you're ready and willing to hear back how you've become so well-adjusted in your culture because you can't see it. And so as we do this with even our kids, as I talk with my kids, sometimes it's so easy for me to see like, oh, I don't think you're, you're so well-adjusted to the culture. But if I'm not ready and willing to hear back from them, then we're not having a conversation and I'm not listening to Paul in my own life. So it's very, very hard for us to see in ourselves where we become so well-adjusted. The second reason that this is really difficult is because cultures don't ever tell us what to love. They don't come out and say, you are a consumer. Consume. And in fact, if our culture said that to us, I think we'd be very offended. We'd be like, I'm not a consumer. Whoa, 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 that's not who I am at the core of my heart. But what we do is we learn to become consumers, to value ourselves and others by the things that we do and that we don't have by stories and practices. That's the vehicle to direct our hearts just slightly off onto some other vision of the good life. And so um, these two things make it really hard for us to know where we become well-adjusted to our culture. So how can we identify the places where we are and then how do we change? Paul continues here, fix your attention on God and you'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. So the first thing he says here is fix your attention on God. He's inviting us to immerse ourselves in the story of Jesus to identify those places where we're off, where our lives have become so well adjusted that we're living off. And our cultures are every day forming us, forming us. And so part of what we need to do as followers of Jesus is to engage in counterformation, places where we're recalibrating the compass of our lives onto what God calls the best. Now, how do we do this? There's three steps in this passage. The first, like I said, is to get familiar with the story of God and his vision for what it means to be human. And you're here. You're doing that. So good job. You're taking a step into the right direction. But some of you will say to me, and, and this is often probably the, the most critical thing I hear about my sermons and my preaching, is that I am not being practical enough. And that's good criticism, because I don't like to tell you what to do all the time. But thankfully, Paul has, doesn't have that problem. He's very happy to tell you what to do. So he gets very granular later here in chapter 12. So let me just read what he says. Let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Take the lead in honoring one another. Do not lack diligence in zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in affliction, be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs, pursue hospitality, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, instead associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath, because it is written, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. 
These are Paul's words to the Roman church and to us. So Paul says the next step for us is to recognize what God wants from you. What is God inviting you into in this season? And so we can read scripture, we read a passage like this, and just pray, God, would you show me where my compass is off? And for some of you, you already know, as we read this passage, maybe one or two things just stands out to you. The, the kind of like a Holy Spirit ping for you. Something lights up, something gains heat, however you want to say it. And you feel God pressing in on you. This is the area that I'm inviting you to grow and to become more like me and to take your arrow and, and point it back towards my vision of what it means to be human in this next season. So some of you already know, as we read a passage like this, or you just know from your own life where God is, is uh, asking you to, to change and to become more like him. But if you don't, and maybe you're like me, where you're like, I don't know, I think I'm pretty, doing pretty well, kind of knocking most of these out of the park, if I'm going to be honest, then what you can do is you can just find a friend, and you can text them a passage like this, and you can just say, hey, can you help me see where I might be living off, slightly off? Where am I become so well-adjusted to the culture that I can't see? And in my experience, if you're blessed with a spouse, they, this might be their greatest gift to you. They, in my experience, they're very, very happy to help you see where you've become so well-adjusted to the culture. And we need other peoples, and so just ask them, where is my life off? Where am I living out of step with the Spirit, as Paul will say? Where am I walking out of line with the Spirit? Where is God calling me to become more like Jesus? And then the next step is to put those things into action. That's what Paul says here, to quickly respond to it. Once we hear where the Spirit is guiding and directing us, then we are to respond to it and address the areas where we're off, not just with good vibes or thoughts and prayers, but with practices. Practices that will help us live into the people that God is calling us to be. So if cursing people is a problem for you, then put practices in your life of learning how to bless. And I'll just give you, again, I'm trying to be very practical without trying to tell you exactly what to do. But if you want me to tell you what to do, come find me after the service and we'll get a coffee and I'll be very happy to try to tell you what to do. But I'll just give you an example of my own life from this. So recently I have someone in my life who I would call a mentor and a brother do something that was hurtful to me and um, I would just call it unwise. He made some very poor decisions that were hurtful to me and hurtful to us as a church by extension. Now you're already thinking, who is this person and what did they do? This is about me and my feelings, okay? Focus on me. This is my time here. So anyways, the point is, I was frustrated. I was very frustrated by this, but, you know, I'm an emotional robot. So I'm like, ah, I'll put that behind me. Let's stuff it down. I rode a few mountains and just, like, worked it out on my bike through my thighs. That's the way that uh, I've learned to process emotions. Um, and, uh, but I was chatting with a mentor of mine. And I was telling him about what happened and just how frustrated I was. And my mentor said to me, he said, what this person did is not evil, but it's also not okay. You need to go talk to this person. But more important than that, I'm sensing that you are becoming a bitter person. The bitterness is taking root in your life. And he said to me, if that's who you are as a father, as a friend, as a husband, as a pastor, that bitterness will seep out in everything that you do. Real talk. And I was like, okay. That is, that is becoming part of my life. Then we were doing a member check-in later with some of the people in the church. If you're not familiar with that, member check-in, like we said, we want to be a church that's centered on Jesus. So membership for us isn't about signing a piece of paper piece of paper that you agree to everything. It's about living into membership. And so we have this practice called the member check-in. Again, it's one of these things we want to make part of our lives. And we just make space to ask three different questions. Is my life in this last season moving away or towards God? 
Is my life moving away or towards God's family? And is my life moving away or towards a heart for the city and my neighbors? So I was praying through these questions, and one of the questions in there is, are you harboring bitterness? This is like literally one or two days later. I was like, oh, okay, God. I think you've got my attention of what's happening. And so this is what I felt God calling me into. And I realized these words from this passage, I hadn't been reading this passage at the time, were very true of my life. When I thought of this person, it was very hard for me to bless. And I wasn't cursing them to other people, but the, the script that was running in my mind all the time was, a, was of curse. And so the first thing I did was every time this person came to mind, I started to say, bless and not curse. It became like a prayer bead for me. Bless and not curse. Bless and not curse. Bless and not curse. And I would start to pray for them. And it was very hard work. Pray for them. Pray for their family. Pray for their marriage. Pray for everything that's going on in their life. And just learn through the gospel to bless and not curse. And the, sec the second thing I did is I scheduled a meeting with this person. And so I confronted him. I talked with him about it. it turns out he was largely unaware of what he'd done. It's kind of classic. If you ever become bitter against someone, I'm sure that you don't have that problem. It's probably just me. But you know how these situations balloon in your mind. They're really a small thing, something someone did on accident, and it ballooned in my mind and became something they did on purpose. And so I was able to ask for forgiveness from this person and say, I, I'm very sorry. Uh, I have harbored bitterness in my heart. And they were all able to ask for forgiveness from me and say, I'm sorry that we did this thing that hurt you. And we gave each other a big hug we prayed for each other, and we said, I love you, and the meeting was over. And that's how it ended. And I say this not because every situation might end like that, but just to hear a little bit an example of how this might play out in life. As you hear the Spirit calling you to do something, as you can step into that, what are the practices you can actually put into place? So in, in my, this last season of my life, that has been part of my rule of life, is to pray these prayers. See, how about you? Where are the places that God is calling you in this next season of life, in this summer, as you travel, as you do different things, as you experience the summer. You know, as I was praying through this passage for our church, three things stood out to me. How's your, how's your zeal? Paul uses that word, zeal. Where are your passions pointing? Are they directed towards God? Is he the one that you are passionate about? And this is some, one of those things that's an easy litmus test for us to look at. What are the things that I care the most about? And I'm sure... For those of us here, it's probably not something bad that you care about. Like if I was to come ask you, you're like, yeah, my crack sales, they're way down, and like, I really care about them. That's not going to be our story. Sorry if that's you and you're selling crack. Um, I'm just trying to say that's probably not us. The things that are occupying the spaces in our hearts and our minds are probably good things. But they're things that are taking space from passion for God. Where is that coming alongside of your passion for everything else in your life? That's one thing Paul says. The second thing is, you know, a lot of us have, a, in this room, we have young kids, and I love these words from Paul. They're so challenging to me. Rejoice, be patient, be persistent in prayer. You know, it's your everyday life again, and maybe you don't have time right now to go on a one-week silent retreat, but what about when your kid wakes up in the middle of the night? Could these become the words that you pray over yourself and over them? Rejoice. Make me patient and resilient in prayer. How's your generosity doing? Paul talks about that in this passage. You know, as our culture tightens their hands and tightens their sphincters, as inflation goes up and things cost more, how are you doing in that area? Are we living any different? Are our hands open? 
to become people of generosity by the power of the Holy Spirit in God's story? What does it look like to place that as an offering before God in your life? And so that's the pattern, is recognize the places where our lives are off, where our loves are misdirected, where we become so well-adjusted to our culture that we're not pursuing Jesus. And then recalibrate with the story and the person of Jesus. Learn to listen to the Spirit and then partner with Him through practices. That's, That's the whole invitation of this series and the rule of life in general. Let's finish with this last sentence. Paul says, unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings out the best of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. The invitation of God is to come into the family of God, and we talked about this in a lot of different ways in the series in Galatians, that God, we are in Christ. We are people who are clothed with Christ. We belong to Christ. We've received grace. But as I said, that is not the finish line. In a church that's centered on Jesus, that doesn't become the finish line, but a starting gun. It's an invitation for us to become people that look like Jesus. This passage says to become people who are mature. And that's an invitation for us, whoever you are, no matter who you are in this room. You know, for some of us, I think we think as we get older, we just ultimately become or automatically become more mature in Christ. But I think I can say this as a person who is probably one of the oldest people in this community, which is a wild thing to say. In these later years of my life, in the last years of my life, I realize that in some ways I just get older. I don't get any more mature. I just don't deal with the things that 16-year-old John deals with in the same way anymore. It has nothing to do with my walk with God. It just has to do with my hormones somehow getting dialed way down. And that's true for all of us. Wherever we are at in our walk with God, maybe you're, you're 12 years old or maybe you're 2,000 years old. There's this invitation from God to become mature, to become more like him, to pursue him with our everyday lives. And this is not because God hates you or you're letting him down or that you have anything left to earn. That's not why Paul is so passionate about this and why we want to talk about it a lot. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with our vision of what it means to be human, being too small. That for so many of us, we're just dreaming about what we could be and the things that our hearts are pointing at. They're just so small compared to what God has on tap and what he has on offer for us. That he wants each of us, each person in this room, to become like Jesus, to look like Jesus. That's his vision for what it means to be human. And we settle for so much less. As one of my favorite authors says, we just settle for skull-sized kingdom dreams when God wants to connect us with the king of the universe reigning and ruling for all time. To be seated with him, to be receiving from him, and be reflecting his life out into the world. That's what God has for each of us. I don't know who you are. I don't care who you are in this room. That he invites you into that life, and he wants you to step into it and partner with him, to learn how to partner with the Spirit and with one another in becoming more like Jesus, that we be people who look more like Jesus, and grace becomes more and more embodied in our stories, and we would look like Jesus and do the things that he would do if he was us, in this moment in time, in your situation, in our culture. And that's why the Spirit is gently tapping on our lives, not to make us feel guilty or to try to tell us we're not doing enough, but to remind us of the mercy that's in the rearview mirror, that we have received grace and mercy through Jesus, and he's opened this door now to partner with him and to live in what it means to be human and to become people who look like Jesus. Let's pray to close. God, we...
thank you for this passage and we thank you for this invitation. I pray against any um, yeah, just feelings of, of in this room that we might not be doing enough to make you happy. Instead, may, as, even as we respond in song and in prayer and in taking communion together in giving, may we be reminded of your grace to us through Christ, that he has done what we cannot, that we are free as long as we're in him. And I pray that instead of um, trying to earn anything, you would help us to add effort, that we would learn to partner with you with our lives in this way. So as we, as we respond in all the ways that you're calling us to, I ask that you would speak, Spirit. Would you help lead and guide us to become like you. Give us ears to hear your voice and help us to partner with you in very practical ways that we might be people who receive your grace and also reflect it out into our world that desperately needs it. So we give this time to you and we pray these things together in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen.